Praise God. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you have your journals, open up to chapter number 7. Yeah, there you go. They're giving you a little light so you can make a note or two if you would like this morning. Uh, let, let me just begin with some, uh, we were just singing a minute ago, I, I can show you my weakness. And I appreciate that we have a lyric like that in our, in our songs because our praises need to reflect the life that we're trying to live in our discipleship groups and in our congregation. Uh, take, for instance, myself. I'm a walking contradiction at times. And you won't have to point that out because I get that. Uh, imagine someone who lives such a public life as I uh, being lonely. Notice, imagine that. I, I know, I have so many personal relationships it would boggle your mind. All over the world, not just here. You know, and at times I sit down and just feel lonely. <laughs> I can't explain it. I'm, I'm just a little bizarre at times. Uh, I'm a very optimistic person. You know, I preach against pessimism as not being compatible with Christianity. I don't think it is. And I'm still praying for a lot of you. It's not compatible with Christianity. Uh, I am the eternal optimist, very forward thinking. And yet, at times, I just get a little bluesy and morose. I can't explain it because I'm not a pessimist. I know everything's great. But sometimes I just want to listen to country music and be sad. You know, I, I can't explain it. I, 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 I'm a decision maker. I'm a risk taker. Those are two, two attributes of Bobby. But at times, I have a timid moment and need to be surrounded by strong leaders to help push me forward a little bit. And I get it. I'm, I'm a bit of a walking contradiction. I know that about myself. And I know when I'm going into one of those moments. I feel it coming on like a seizure. I mean, I, I know when it's about to happen, but I can't stop it. And I get into that moment and have to be guided through that moment. I know sometimes, I mean, if I say I'm a spiritual grandparent, you cornerstone people get that. But sometimes I act like a spiritual infant. Oh, I have some moments. I know you don't. I'm just saying I do. I'm not preaching at you. I'm just... Being open, have some contradictory moments. But truly this morning, I, I, I know you feel it already, I'm sure you have your contradictions too. We all have some, where we're this and then we're that and we flip and we flop a little bit in certain areas of our life. One of the things I want you to see this morning so clearly is that the Corinthians definitely had their own contradictions. One minute, they're arguing for the right to engage with prostitutes. The next minute, they're arguing to stop having sexual relationships with their spouses. That's this morning, yeah. One minute, they're arguing, it's okay to go to prostitutes. We're free in Christ. We're mature. You know, liberty, liberty, freedom. We're higher spirituality. What we do in the flesh doesn't matter. And then in the next moment, the Corinthians are arguing, well, since we're saved and we're only thinking about spiritual things, we need to repress all physical and sexual urges, and we probably need to introduce celibacy back into our marriages. And if you feel like you're on an emotional roller coaster reading these chapters, 
As you see the Corinthians, these elite spiritual brothel attenders. There's a sentence you never thought you'd hear in church. Higher elite spiritual knowing brothel attenders. Uh, if you feel like you're on a bit of a what, what, what whiplash effect here, you are. That's exactly what's going on. And we can step back and look at that and say, what in the world, people? But if Paul was alive today writing to us, we would have our own contradictions. You you see what I'm saying? And we would be writing to Paul, well, what about homosexuality? We would be writing to Paul, well, what about abortion? Well, what about it's my body I can do as I want to do? I'm just saying, not to get on any specific issue this morning, but I'm just saying we have our own contradictions in the modern church and we'd be writing to Paul and Paul would be, and if somebody else were reading our mail, they'd be like, what, 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 what? So don't, now realize they've got some issues, but, and they're not all directly applicable to you this morning, but just be patient as we go through here and maybe as we read these, this mail that's not ours, Maybe God begins to point out, like he does me in preparation for these messages, some of my own inconsistencies. Maybe God's going to begin to point out some things in your life. Maybe even things that are not very, these are very public sins that we're dealing with here. Maybe in the modern church our sins are very private sins. We live in the middle of about 10 million people. Not everybody knows you. You know, If you salute people going down the freeway, they don't know where you live. They don't know that you're a Christian. They don't know where you go to church. They don't know that you're a follower of Christ. So maybe your testimony is not hurt, and the gospel is not hurt, and the church is not hurt, and there's some amount of anonymity living in a multitude. I get that. So maybe our sins are a little more secret to the community, but it doesn't mean that we don't have any. And as we go through this, maybe the Holy Spirit begins to tug on something that's in your life that's not a public thing, but it is a thing, and it's a thing God knows about and you know about, it's maybe a thing He wants you to face in these days and repent of and find some way forward with God through your repentance to rededicate your life. And I'll talk about that more as I get to the conclusion this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now in response to the matters that I wrote to you about. Let's stop right there. Now in response to the matters you wrote about. I'm responding to the matters you wrote about. We entitled this series Zero Corinthians because we keep telling you letters are flying back and forth. We don't have them. If we had them, we could recreate the conversation perfectly. We're only hearing one side of the phone call. It's a lot harder. I'll talk about it again in a minute. Paul opens seven and says, I've been responding for six chapters to Chloe's report. Now something's about to change, chapter seven. Now I'm responding to the things you wrote about. So now for a while, let me answer directly the latest letter you've sent me. We've already exchanged letters. I already feel like I've spoken to this several times, but you're ignoring me and dismissing me. You're saying I'm not even a spirit-filled person like you are. You spirit-filled elite brothel attenders are. And I realize you don't even think I'm, you're questioning my apostleship because I'm not flashy, I'm not rich, and maybe, my, maybe I'm not as 
you know, orator, oratorically skilled. But I am an apostle. Pastor David will speak about that next week. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, if you're journaling very quickly, right here in the margin, by 7-1, write 725, 8-1, 12-1, 16-1, 16-12, just to get started. And you say, what are those? Those are moments in the coming days... As you keep reading, where Paul keeps saying, now in response to, now about what you wrote me, now concerning the matter which you brought up, Paul's going to keep answering their questions one after another as we push forward through the book. Shifting from Chloe to answering the Corinthians' questions from their letter. Instead of a friendly conversation, they have clearly taken exception to the advice that the Apostle Paul has given them about their previous questions. And in return, they have developed their own private theology that is outside of the Gospel. It's outside of the Gospel they got saved by. It's outside of the Gospel Paul brought them. And he keeps saying, the road you're going down totally perverts the Gospel and will destroy this church. God considers you holy. The Holy Spirit abides in this temple of your gathering and in this temple of your person. And you need to be cautious how you proceed. But their new theology that they've developed appeals to Sophia and Gnosis to, to wisdom and knowledge, which the Greco-Romans philosophy, uh, human wisdom, however you want to say that, and this new theology that they've arrived at is now uh, something they're boasting about because now they are, quote, quote, air quote, people of the Spirit. Paul has answered them like a father loves his children, but they've been dismissive of Paul. They're pushing back with a very childish attitude See if this sounds familiar, parents. But why? But why can't we? No, you, we can't do that. But why? Because of blah, blah, blah. But why? Because of blah, blah, blah. But why? Because of blah, blah, blah. But why? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yeah. And when you hear that, you're like, wow, what are you like, two? You know, that's exactly what's happening. Paul's answering their question. And they're like, but I want to do what I want to do. Why can't we? And that's what they've said. And now chapter 7, Paul is about to answer again. Why can't we? Again, before we proceed, a note of caution. Because Paul is responding to their letter, which we don't have. Zero Corinthians, we don't have it. We can only hear Paul's side of the conversation. We are very much in the dark about what their side of the conversation sounds like. Listen carefully. We think we know what their questions were. We think we know what the responses are. But from here forward, 7 to 16, as we go forward, as we move forward, be very cautious in 1 Corinthians. Because you cannot say with certainty what the questions are. You cannot say with certainty what the other side of the conversation is. Now, we'll reconstruct it. We're going to try. 
We're going to attempt to reconstruct both sides of the conversation, but there are going to be times in the coming weeks now, from here till May, where we're going to have to say on a Sunday morning, here's two or three really good options of what's happening here. You need to pray over those and see if you can find some understanding. But there's two or three legitimate and reasonable options that we need to consider this morning. And I don't want you to think I'm giving some kind of cop-out where, you know, I'm just, anything goes. It's not that anything goes. It's that I don't have the other side of the conversation. And so I can, and then you'll see this morning, as I'll posit a few to you, that there are several possibilities So as chapter 7 opens, we are immediately presented with a very clear example of why you cannot take a verse out of its context, right out of the gate. So let me just do you a little fun exercise. Let me take two chapter 7 verses right out of their context, and let's build our own little theology this morning, okay? Let's twist the Word of God, make it say what it doesn't say. How about that for a fun exercise on a Sunday morning? 1 Corinthians 7, 1. It is good for a man not to use woman for sex. Well, let's just take that verse and a few verses down. Let's connect it with verse number 29. That is what I mean, brothers and sisters, that the time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as if they had none. And if I wanted to twist the scripture, I would say to you, Paul clearly is saying... Men, you should not be engaging in sex with a woman. Why? Because the time is close. The Lord may come at any moment. And those of you who are married need to be as if you were not. How do you wives feel about that? How do your husbands feel about that? You say, well, is that what it says? That's what it says. And if you take it out of context and just connect that together, you can just get up and preach those two verses on a Sunday morning until everybody... We need to dissolve all these marriages or at least stop the intimate relationships in all of our marriages because the Lord commands that since the second coming is close, we focus on other issues. It's right there in the Bible. Shouldn't we practice that? (laughs) Praise God. Uh, All right. Uh, Well, that would be totally incorrect. And that's why you don't take verses out of their context and build a theology. Because you can make it say whatever you want it to say. Verses do not give context to the issue. Paragraphs and whole letters give context to the meaning of the verses. Notice some Bible versions now, as we move forward from chapter 7 to the end, some Bible versions really help us. Because the editors uh, on, the, on the translation committees have decided to use quotes when we're in a conversation and the Corinthians' words are being quoted. Now, this is new if you grew up in a KJV, uh, you know, very conservative Orthodox church where they use authorized version only, which I did. There are no quotes anywhere. And so when you're reading through a book like 1 Corinthians, you think you're reading Paul's words to the Corinthians, you are not reading Paul's words to the Corinthians. At times, you're reading Paul quote the Corinthians' words back to themselves because they're a slogan-driven church and he loves to quote their words and flip them back. Does that make sense? So the modern versions really help you now. 
when it's very obvious that it's a quote, they're going to put quotations around the Corinthians' words. Now, they probably didn't get them all, and I want to talk a little bit more about that, but they do help us. Let me show you a picture. Here's several different translations. Let me just scrap. Here we go. ESV quotes it. Now, concerning the matters which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. God's Word doesn't quote it. NIV quotes it. For the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Pretty similar. NLT, now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. It gets more difficult without the quotes to figure, on, figure out what's being said. It's a lot more confusing. CSB, which we're using this morning. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to use a woman for sex. Well, what do, what do you use then? Not to have sexual relations, not to get married, to abstain from sexual relations, not to use women for sex. I grew up in an authorized version church, KGV church, as a kid. Let me see if I can pull it up. It is good for a man, now the concerning the things I wrote to you about, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's the version I grew up with. Not to touch a woman. Mom, stop putting your hand on my shoulder. And Susan, I'm not allowed to, not to touch a woman. I'm sorry I shook your hands this morning as you came in the door and greeted you. That's a whole other thing. So here's what I want you to see. The modern translations are really helping you now. They're drawing out what's being said because they're trying to come at it from the point of view as what in the world is the question? Now, concerning the things you wrote, what did they write? Did it have to do with sexual relations in a marriage? Did it have to do with sex, period, in the universe? Did it have to do with getting married? Did it have to do with abusing sexual relations? You see, there's about four or five options here. And we're going to try to figure out exactly what the question is. Now, here's a new thing I want to introduce you to as Paul answers their question. This style of writing... Quotations, go back one more. Center screen, back to that. Come on, there you go. Quotations, quotations. When you see this quotation concerning what you wrote, boom, this is what you wrote, you can expect the next verse to refute it or answer it. Does that make sense? Listen, Jeff, you said this the other day when we were talking, blah, 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 blah. Here's how I want to respond to that. Blah, 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 blah. It's called a quotation refutation device. Now, some of you will want to make note of this because it's going to keep showing up now. Quotation refutation device. It's a style of writing. You know, someone said blah, 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 blah. I say blah, 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 blah. Jesus did this a little bit, you know, when he would speak. Paul does it a lot in these personal letters right here. We may shorten this and call it a QRD. So if Pastor David or Jeremy or I are up speaking and we say, hey, this is a QRD. This is a quotation refutation device. Here are the quotes. Watch them refute it. Now what's going to make it a little more subtle is the publishers don't always know when to put the quotes in the text. There's not universal consent on some of the verses in the Bible. And when there's not universal consent, they typically would just step back and not quote it. Because we're not for sure. Does that make sense? 
it still could be a QRD sitting in the text where Paul's quoting your words, boom, and then either refuting them or building off of what you said. Now the point and the reason you want to know this is what we want to know is what we want to know the then and the there so we can apply it to the here and the now. This is the whole point. If we can recreate what's happening in the conversation and the principle involved, we can step now 2,000 years into future history where we are and say, okay, here's the principle we need to overlay on our lives. So my goal this morning, as quick as I can, summarize 7 and 8. I cannot read them. I can't even touch every verse this morning. Whatever questions you have unanswered after reading 7 and 8, shoot them in via the text line and we'll answer them in the podcast this week. The Corinthians have somehow assumed, because they are, air quotes, people of the Spirit, that they need to refrain from having sex altogether, divorce their spouses, and break off their engagements. And you're thinking, what? Exactly. We don't know how they got there. We don't know how they arrived at this position because we don't have the letters. But here's what we can figure out. The Corinthians have somehow arrived at a theology that says because we are people of the Spirit, we can do anything, but we probably should stop having sex, but we can eat in the temple of idols, and prostitutes wouldn't be too bad, but we should stop having sexual relationships with our wives, and all of you who are engaged should probably break your engagement. Now, is that messed up? Now, Paul has to untangle that in chapter 7. Watch him untangle it now. Here we go. Now, concerning the things you wrote about, here's the first block of answers. It's what about marriage? Verses 1 through 16, if you're journaling, have to do with the question, what about marriage? And everything in this paragraph deals with marriage-related issues. This will probably be the only paragraph I'll read this morning in its entirety, but let me read it to set the stage. 7-1. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use woman for sex. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife And each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. And we're not talking about laundry. We're not talking about laundry. It's not the context. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but the husband does. In the same way, A husband does not have the right over his own body. His wife does. Do not deprive one another. Except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come again together. Otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this now as a concession, not as a command. What? That whole paragraph. Say this as a concession and not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am. How is he? Single. Single. I wish all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift and another has 
that gift. Now here's what you have to know as you approach this paragraph. Paul is reacting to a specific situation. He is not giving a compendium about his views on marriage. Paul is guiding them towards a proper marriage and sexual ethic within the marriage. That's what's happening. This is not an encyclopedia about marriage or all of Paul's thoughts about marriage. This does not represent all of God's thoughts about marriage. This is just Paul reacting to a question, a specific question to a specific place in first century Corinth. So we can infer from the statement that some were saying believers should abstain from sexual relations. Now there's no way for us to figure out how the first century Corinthians came to adopt this belief. But Paul wants them to know that sex between a man and a woman is not bad, it's good. Not bad, good. Now, I grew up in church all my life. I have my own baggage. And part of the baggage that everybody has that grew up in church, Orthodox church like I did, is sex bad, sex bad, sex bad, sex bad, sex bad. We were, we were just programmed with that. It was kind of the, you know, the guilt that came with growing up in church. And I wish they had talked a whole lot more about Sex is good, keep it in the right boundaries. Sex is good, keep it in the right boundaries. This is God's blessing, keep it in the right way. And had been more optimistic about the proper use instead of focusing only ever on the negative use. And I can't tell you how many young couples I've had to counsel early in their marriage who had so much baggage and hang-ups about sex bad, sex bad, sex bad that they had trouble having intimacy with each other and just enjoying the marriage because they had all of these walls they had built up and, and, and a real psychology that was completely against uh, sexual expression. And you're like, but they're married. Yeah, but it's not that easy to flip switches in your life. That's the problem. And so Paul's saying, not sex bad. Now trust me, Corinth is like sex city, Okay. I want to get back to that. This is like everybody's having sex with everybody, okay? Uh, listen, there's so much sex going on here. He's like, what in the world? Within the church, you have sexual relations that pagans have, they would blush at. That one of you is having an affair with his own mother. Okay, listen. So when Paul talks to them, there is some things to untangle here that are very touchy. But Paul's overall... Attitude is sex good, man and woman good, great, awesome, but within the marriage context. Now let me summarize Paul's thoughts because that's all I have time for this morning. If you're taking notes, verses 1 through 7 are summarized in this way. There should be no abstinence in marriage. If you want to write something down, no abstinence in marriage. And for all of that, I figured there'd be a roaring amen right there this morning. No abstinence in marriage. Not allowed. Now that's good preaching, right? That's worth coming to church for on a Sunday morning. The Bible says no abstinence in marriage. And Paul is dogmatic on that. Let's champion that as the cornerstone motto. All right. <laughs> Verses 8 and 9 are summarized in this way. Widows and widowers can choose to either remain single or get married. We have some widows and widowers here this morning. 
And you may be, they did, and evidently the question came to Paul, what about us? You know, what are we to do? And Paul's like, well, you've got options. Remarry? Don't remarry. (laughs) Seems obvious, but they needed to hear it from the apostle. It's not wrong to remarry. It's not wrong to stay single. Ball's in your court. Do as you please. Verses 10 to 16 are summarized by this question. What about divorce? What about divorce? Now, here's one of those moments where I need to give you some options. Their question may have been, now it's not just what about divorce, period. Write us a whole book on divorce. That's not what's happening. The question was specific about divorce. So Paul gives some specific answers. I don't know what the questions are, but here's some options. The questions may have been, does being married to a pagan somehow defile me as a Christian? It's a good question. What about our kids? What's their standing in all of this? That's a good question. The question may have been, does God see me as immoral because I'm married, my spouse is an idolater? Does somehow my spouse, being an idolater, now I'm connected to my spouse, and in this union, am I an idolater because I'm connected to an idolater? Does this somehow, does God somehow see me as immoral, even though I've given my heart to Christ, but I'm in a committed relationship and I'm emotionally attached, I'm physically attached. What does my standing mean because I have a spouse that's unsafe? Or the question could have been, should I stop having sexual relations with my spouse since my spouse is participating in idol worship? That's also a pretty good question. Because idol worship involved temple prostitution. Which is totally acceptable in Corinth. Nobody even blushed. It's just the way life was. You had sex at the temple. You had a mistress or two on the side. You had slaves that were your property and you could do with as you want. And you had a wife. There were a lot of outlets. Okay? That was the context. But now some question has come to Paul about, okay, how does that all affect my standing with God? If I'm married to someone who's an unbeliever and they're participating in idol worship, does that somehow defile me and the kids should I divorce my unsaved spouse? And you thought your life was complicated. Their lives were really complicated. You see how tricky this is? So the questions are coming at Paul and he's answering those specific questions questions he is not giving a primer for people living in texas two thousand years later here's all the rules on marriage and divorce that is not what you're reading you're reading about something very specific that they have asked him now our tension is drawn to this fact when you read all of the verses that their circumstances are not yours their circumstances are not ours Now, that doesn't mean we just say, well, why are we even studying 1 Corinthians? Because there's something to learn here. It was not written to us, but Holy Spirit has preserved it for us. So God obviously wants us to read and study this to learn something 
about this exchange that we're reading so that God can instruct us with some principles for living right now. Paul begins his discussion about divorce in particular here with the words of Jesus, the prohibition of Jesus, saying no, Jesus, the Lord said no, no divorce. Then as Paul keeps talking, he applies the Lord's commands to the new situation in Corinth, a new situation that did not exist when Jesus was standing in Jerusalem saying this to his Jewish peers. Now Paul is in Corinth taking the Lord's teaching and applying it freshly, listen to me, with discernment. Here's the big one, here's the big one, don't miss it. And flexibility. Because he's going to tell them if you need to divorce, you can and it's okay. But you probably shouldn't. Because you might end up leading them to Christ. And the whole thing will be rescued. But he takes the Lord's command and reapplies it to his own context with discernment and flexibility. Is anybody seeing maybe something we should be doing here in Fort Worth 2,000 years later? Take the teaching of the Bible and try to overlay the principles onto our own context. Now, throughout the conversation of chapter 7, Paul is not developing a theology about divorce. He does not deal with the legal issues of marriage. He does not deal with the legitimate reasons for divorce. He does not deal with when and if a person can remarry that's divorced. None of this is talked about because those weren't the questions that Paul was being asked. He's being asked something about sexual relations, saved spouse, unsaved spouse. How does that dynamic all work and what about the kids? So throughout chapter 7, the one takeaway that I got as we studied this with the staff for a year, Paul does continually uphold marriage. Here's a big takeaway for us this morning. Marriage is not out of date and out of style. Committing your life to someone is God's design from Genesis chapter number 2 and 3. And marriage is upheld by the Lord. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is upheld by the apostles of Jesus Christ as they continue to finish out the New Testament. The apostle Paul as that last apostle comes along and totally upholds it again. And says that marriage is holy before God. It is God initiated, God originated, it is God's model, and we hold it in a high regard, and because God does, we shall continue. Does that sound fair? So I think this should be also part of the cornerstone model, that we champion healthy marriage. And we're going to do that. You say, well, I'm single, I'm divorced, whatever. Doesn't mean we're speaking anything against you. I I would think you want to be a part of a church that upholds God's view of marriage. And we're going to try to maintain that if we can. All right, so chapter, uh, verse number 17. 17 to 24 are about this topic. What about changing my status? Anybody here ever go up to Facebook and flip single to in a relationship? What about my status? You know? So what happens? Let me read verse 17. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned When God called him, this is what I command the churches. Read it again. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. If you're journaling, I want you to underline the word called and I want you to write in the margin, got saved. 
Let each one of you live your life in the situation where you got saved. What situation were you in when you got saved? Were you a Jew? Well, then just be a Jew. What situation were you in when you got saved? A Gentile? Then just be a Gentile. Don't I need to get circumcised and become a Jew? Paul said, wouldn't waste my time. Just remain in the situation. Stay in the status you're in. Were you married when you got saved? Okay, just stay married. Because see, this is their question. Should we get a divorce now? No, just stay married. You say, well, I was single when I got saved. Does God demand that I get married? Does God demand that I get married now that I'm... Because that's the original model in Genesis. So God expects everybody to get married, right? Yes or no? No. From the single lady. I heard clearly down front, yes. No. He doesn't demand that you get married. Why would he demand that? Paul's not married. You see what's happening here. He's responding to questions, and he's saying, whatever state you were in, okay, so what do you think the question was? The question had to have something to do with, once we get saved, do we need to become something else? Do we need to change all of our, do I need to undo my circumcision? I wouldn't even know how that would work, but I don't know, how could you undo it? I, I, I'm a Jew or I'm a Gentile and I need to, rever- I need to be something else? Paul's like, what? Now, because it, it, the circumcision comes up in the chapter related to this question. What else comes up in the chapter related to this question is slavery. Were you a slave when you received Christ? Great. Just keep on serving your master. It's going to be fine. Then Paul says, but if you can be free, be free. How cool is that? But we're not going to go on a crusade to set all the slaves free yet. That also happens right here very subtly. See, three times here Paul tells them, remain in your present situation. So what happened evidently is something to do with the Corinthians wanting to change their status now that they are highly, air quotes again, developed spiritual people. Now that they've risen above everything, they want to change their status somehow. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's, that's superfluous. And here's Paul's underlying logic. Since the offer of salvation came to you without any requirements for you to change your ethnic, social, or domestic status. In other words, God didn't say, you must get married and then I'll save you. Or you must get divorced and then I'll save you. Or you must be a Jew and then I'll save you. Or you must be a freeman or then I'll save you. Since salvation came to us, God extended his love and mercy and grace to us with no requirements upon our ethnicity, our domestic status, our social standing. Then there is therefore no change needed for religious reasons. Now you might want to make a change for some other reason. Are you with me now? There's some subtlety to this. You may want to change your status for other reasons, but if you're seeking to change your status for religious reasons in order to make yourself more spiritual, you're wasting your time because that doesn't make you more spiritual. That's what Paul's trying to get through their head. Verse 25 to 40. Write this heading in your journal. What about my fiancé? What about my engagement? I just got saved. I'm engaged. 
It's another little twist here. What about my fiance? Now, in the text, it uses the word virgin. Paul's talking about how you respond to your virgin. For them, that's your equivalent of saying, how do I treat now my fiancé, the one I'm engaged to? I don't know exactly what the question was. Maybe it was this. Paul, I just got saved. I'm engaged to an unbeliever who worships idols. Should I break off my engagement? Don't answer out loud. What would you advise? I just got saved. I'm engaged to an idolater. We're in love. Should I break off my engagement? It's a good question, isn't it? Has a lot of life implications to that question. Happiness for the future question, uh, implication. Maybe the question was this. Paul, we want to focus on making disciples but we're engaged because our parents have arranged the marriage. We really don't want to follow through with that. We want to stay single and focus on making disciples and advancing the kingdom of God. Do we have to get married? Maybe that was the question. And it matters what the question was. So Paul's answer, though, are summarized. Let me summarize it this way. Paul prefers singleness, but it's not required. Now, again, why does Paul prefer singleness? He's single. He's single. Yeah. He's like, I'm a bachelor. I prefer bachelorhood. Uh, I'm single. I prefer singleness. Why? Because he's like the Energizer Bunny, just going here and there. He don't have any school pickups. There's no, he doesn't have tons of laundry. He, he, don't, he don't need drapes. You, you see what I'm saying? When you have singleness, then you can focus on just one mission. And that's Paul's attitude about following Christ. And he's like, I wish everybody were like me. Listen, if everybody were like Paul, where would planet Earth be 2,000 years later? Humans would have been extinct a long time ago. If everybody were like Paul, nobody procreated. So that can't be what the Bible's teaching. What Paul's saying is, I'm single. I wish everybody was single. Look how much we get done. You go to Rome. You go to Corinth. You go to... It's like Paul. He's like the Energizer Bunny about making, you know, disciples. But that's not what God's called the rest of us to do. That's what God called Paul to do. And he's uniquely gifted and wired for that. And he's not going to force the Corinthians into this. So Paul prefers singleness, but it's not required. That's verses 25 to 28 if you're journaling. Verses 29 to 35 are Paul's reasons for singleness. Are there any reasons why somebody would want to be single? Sure, and I've just already articulated a little bit of that so that they could focus on what God has called them to do. Verses 36 to 40 are summarized in this, but marriage is not a sin. Go for it. Go for it. Marriage is not a sin. Now, I hope 40 minutes into this message, and I'm getting close, by the way, 40 minutes into this message, here's what I hope you figured out. This discussion is very removed from our culture. This has nothing to do with Fort Worth in its detailed layout here. So what we need is a fresh application of biblical principles. And just to show you how disconnected this is from your culture, watch my next point. What about food sacrifice to idols? Chapter 8. What about food sacrifice to idols? Has that ever come up in your family reunion discussions? 
game night with the family. Over dinner last this week, one of your kids said, hey, Dad, what about, you know, what about food sacrifice? It never comes up in America, does it? Because it's not our issue. It's not our issue. But it's their issue, and it's a big issue, and so I don't want you to minimize this. I don't want you to minimize this. Let me see if I can just set the stage here. This is such an issue to the Gentile churches of the first century. Let me translate again. That means everything you read after the book of Acts, or really after John, I guess Romans forward, where Gentiles are now coming to Christ in mass, everything from Romans to Revelation has to do with this issue at times. This issue just keeps coming up because it's the culture of the people that were receiving the gospel. They were all idol worshipers. Now listen carefully. Let me show you why this matters. It may not matter exactly directly to you, but when I just put 10 people's picture up on the screen, do you realize they're in the exact same culture? All of their parents are idol worshipers. And they're trying to figure out, if my parents discover I've been baptized, will they murder me this week? If they throw me out with just the clothes on my back, where will I live tonight? Where will I sleep tonight? Probably in the house of my disciple maker. You realize this is still happening right now. And in this context, I could characterize it this way. We have almost... David, you and I were talking about this a week. We've almost conflated being patriotic American with a conservative Christian. We've almost conflated those two things together to where you can't find the separating line between what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a right-wing political view. We almost can't separate that anymore in our own country because the lines are just kind of melted together now. Take, for example, in India... The culture is Hindu, not just the religion. The way you would celebrate July the 4th, they celebrate pagan festivals. Uh, Fireworks. Have you ever seen a show where they're throwing the colored powder on everybody? Has any of you guys who traveled with me ever been when the, oh yeah, did you get colored thrown on you? Sure you did. Don't wear a white shirt during that season when you go to India because it's, it's, it's expected that you're going to get pelted with water balloons and, and dye and, and colored powder. You say, why? It's part of the pagan festival. Well, I'm not pagan. It doesn't matter the whole culture. It, it's, it's like shooting off fireworks at the 4th of July. You can't separate them. Now watch it, watch it go one step further. In Corinth, the restaurants were indistinguishable indistinguishable between the temples. The restaurants were the temples. The temples owned the restaurants. Have any of you ever seen in American culture uh, uh, people getting uh, hair extensions? Do you all know where the hair comes from? This is my world now. Do you all know where the hair comes from? Once or twice in a woman's life, she'll go to the Hindu temple for a tonsure ceremony where she rededicates her life to the goddess or the god, and they shave her head. They'll bundle her hair and tie it, let you rededicate your life to Ganesh. You come down the temple as the priest, I'm going to shave your head as you rededicate your life, and I'm going to bundle up those long locks of yours and tie a ribbon around it, and we're going to take your hair and put it in the temple storehouse. 
there's 1.2 billion of these people. There are, where, there are rooms this big full of hair. Okay? And then it gets cleaned and washed, packaged, and sent to America, and you get extensions. Did you know you're wearing Hindu hair? That was offered to idols as a part of a rededicating my life to the idol ceremony? You didn't know that, did you? But because you have no conscience about it, it didn't bother you. Now you have to get rid of your extensions. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's neither here nor there, okay? That exact logic is about to pop up now, except they own the restaurants. You say, where does the food come from in the restaurant? Talk to me. Where does the food come from? Yeah, the people bring their sacrifice. You know, here's my 4-H and my FFA prize uh, bull and pig and chicken and duck, and they slaughter them as sacrifice to the gods. And the goddess says, well, now we're looking at all this meat. How much meat? Lots of meat. Lots of people make sacrifices, okay? And now the temple owns the meat. The temple doesn't let the meat spoil. These are good business people, okay? They say, gosh, if all these people are sacrificing animals, we should start a little restaurant on the side over here. We make a killing in this city. All these sailors coming into port hungry. Let's start, you know, a street taco stand here. We got tacos all pastor and onions and limes and salsa and, and cerveza. And boy, the lines wrapped around the block. Where'd the meat come from? It was offered in sacrifice to Aphrodite or Bacchus or one of these false gods. There is the issue right there. And so now the Corinthians are writing to Paul saying, can we even, even, can we even eat at a restaurant? Can we even go to a drive through Paul's like, what are you talking about? Well, we're Christians. Can't even go to KFC. Offered to, you know, we can't, we can't even go to Taco Bell. And Paul's like, really? And watch him start dealing with this. It's such an issue in this culture that he deals with in chapter 8, a little bit 9, 10, and it just keeps coming up. We're going to deal with this running conversation all the way to chapter 11 until he gets to the Lord's Supper chapter. It's the same way in a foreign country today. If we take you to Asia, you're probably going to eat food that has either been sacrificed or is dedicated somehow that morning in the shop to idolatry. You're going to have to figure out what you're going to do about that. Now, there are several QRDs in this chapter 8. Anybody know what a QRD is? Quotation, refutation, device. Chapter 8, verse 1. Won't take long. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that. What's the quote? Paul says to the Corinthians, we know we all have knowledge. What did they evidently write to Paul? We have knowledge. Paul, what are you talking to us like we're kids for? We, we are very intellectual and elevated and spiritual brothel attenders. Don't talk to us like we don't know anything. You know, we all have knowledge, okay? Now watch Paul's response to their comment. They said, we have knowledge. Paul said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Look at verse 4. About eating food sacrificed to idols then. We know that, watch what they said to Paul. An idol's nothing. Where did they get that teaching? Probably from Paul. Paul had taught them, it's just a rock. It's just a statue. Somebody made it with their own hands. This is what the prophets talked about in the Old Testament. Somebody chopped down a tree, brought it down here, carved it, overlaid it with gold, and now you're worshiping it as if it's your God. That same wood started a fire somewhere. That same rest of the, what happened to the rest of the tree? 
What happened to the rest of the stone the sculpture chipped away? It's in somebody's driveway as paving. The idol is nothing. Now, that's probably what Paul taught them, okay? Now, they're quoting it back to Paul. Paul, you told us the idol is nothing, so therefore we can go down to the temple of idols because it's really nothing. So how can it hurt anything? You see how they flip the logic back on Paul? Now, Paul is going to quote them, quoting him, and refute the whole mess and say, you totally misapplied what I told you. Is that fair? That's what's happening in 1 Corinthians now 8. Now watch this, 8, 8. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat. And we are not better off if we do eat. I think 8 probably should be in quotes. Because verse 9 now confronts it. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. Well, who taught them that food doesn't bring us close to God? Probably Paul. When he was down there, they're like, well, you know, food this, food that. Paul's like, you know, God doesn't care what you eat. Eat a buffalo if you want to. Eat an oyster. Eat a catfish. Just go for it. It has nothing to do with spiritualness, with your higher spirituality. It's food. Eat it. Enjoy it. God made it. Gobble it down. It's not a big deal. It has no connection to your a higher spirituality. Here's how they flipped Paul's logic. Well, if food doesn't have any connection to spirituality, we'll go eat the idol food with the idol makers down the temple because nobody serves a better prime rib than the temple of Aphrodite. I mean, you can't find better chicken wings than at the strip club. Oh, now I just got to America, didn't I? Best burgers in town down here at the strip club. Well, how do you know that? Well, this is the way they flipped the logic. They said, Paul, since food doesn't matter, we'll just go back down and eat at the idol steakhouse because it's the best steakhouse in town. I think eight should have quotes, but I can't swear to that. And so I'm just going to say this could be another QRD. Now, here's the point. The Corinthians cobbled together their slogans based on misapplying Paul's original teachings And they came away with slogans like this. All things are lawful. We all have knowledge. The idol is nothing. Food is neither moral nor immoral. Eat whatever you want to eat. So here's how the Corinthians cobbled that together and came at this new theological conclusion. Here's their conclusion. Eating amoral food offered to a nothing entity possesses no danger to a Christian since what does not exist, an idol is nothing, since what does not exist, therefore cannot contaminate, so we must be free to do as we darn well please. And so we're going to go participate in the temple of idols. Party at Aphrodite's 8 o'clock. See you there. That's the way they, conclusion they drew. Something like that. So now Paul's writing all of this about food offered to idols, and now you understand why he is, because this is the exchange. I only want to show you a couple of verses here before I conclude. Let me show you verses 1, 2, and 3 in this area. Let me just deal with verse 1. Paul contrasts knowledge and love as the opening of this argument. What's funny is, to answer the question about food offered to idols, he doesn't go to food. He doesn't start talking about food. He starts talking about 
something much bigger than food. Principles, attitudes. Watch what Paul says. Now about food offered a sacrifice to idols. We all have knowledge. That's not the issue. Here's the issue. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Paul contrasts knowledge and love as the framework of his answer about food. Because Paul is focused intently on their attitude towards Christian liberty, not the real issue they brought up, but their bigger attitudes about Christian freedom and Christian liberty. And he's trying to shift their thinking and shift their attitudes going forward for many chapters now. Pastor Dave and I are going to just keep circling back to this. Paul calls the Corinthians to forego using all of their rights all of the time. You don't have to use all of your rights all of the time. At time, you need to yield on the basis of love for God and love for others. And here's Paul's point. Knowledge is not the big indicator of how spiritual you are. The ultimate sign is love. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. You say, what's happening? Here's what's happening. Okay, you Corinthians want a slogan, do you? How about this one? Knowledge puffs up. That's what you are. But love builds up, and that's what I want you to be. Now, you're never going to forget this slogan after today. Knowledge bloats us spiritually so that we think we're something. Knowledge puffs up. Love. Love what? That's what love does. Is God more interested that we know everything about everything, about every higher spiritual secret, about every hidden truth, about every, or is God more concerned that we start loving one another and loving God? I feel like that's kind of what Jesus said when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. I feel like that's kind of what Jesus said when they pressed him on what was the great commandment. And he said, well, there's two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And you shall love your neighbor. Love is the highest Christian ethic. Let me give you two quick thoughts and I'll have it. Paul contrasts idolatry and monotheism. That's verse 4, 5, and 6 for you journalers. His summary is this. We all agree there's one God. And although the idol is nothing, the idol is attached to demonic powers. Now, he doesn't say it in 8, but he's going to say it in 9, 10, 11 as we go. So I'm just telling you it's there. Yeah, an idol is nothing. You go to a foreign country, they're worshiping idols. But you know what you'll feel as soon as you get off the plane? Demonic oppression like you've never felt in your life. Spiritual darkness like you've never encountered. Wherever idols are being worshipped, there's demonic activity that Americans scarcely have understood. It's incredible. I remember the trip. I got sick a couple of years ago. In the fall, Jeremy and I were, were going to Asia. And the night of the trip, I got really sick. Had an infection. I'm on like WebMD at midnight. They're saying, you cannot get on that airplane. And... I called Jeremy about 1 o'clock in the morning. We're supposed to leave at about 6 in the morning. And I said, Jeremy, about those 20 speaking engagements that I have for the next 10 days, you're on. 
You say, well, that's cool. Yep, send him the notes. What I didn't tell him is about three or four days into the trip, they're going to bring you a demon-possessed woman and have you cast the demon out of her. You say, what, what? Yeah, see, you don't experience that because we're not an idolatry country. Now, I'm not saying we don't have demons. We got them. But we don't have them like they have them. It's a little different game. And wherever there's idols, there's demons working in the background. They are the powers behind the idols. Is that fair? File that away because that's underlying what Paul is saying to them. So here's what they're arguing. They're arguing for the right to go down to the idol temple to eat food with the rest of their neighbors who are all eating there the prime rib on Aphrodite Friday night grill out at the temple and they're arguing for the right to go down there with their bottle of A1 and enjoy with everyone else and Paul says it's not just about the food it's about love it's about understanding the big picture here yeah the idol is nothing and I know I told you that but there's demons behind the idol and you're now associating with the table Wait till we get to the Lord's Supper table. Can you eat the Lord's table and the table of demons? That's what he's going to ask him in chapter 11. You say, well, because somebody's trying to do it. And he's like, yeah, we need, to make a, we need to draw a line here. And Paul keeps circling back to the root problem, which is their arrogant attitudes of entitlement to do as they darn well please. And Paul argues that the gospel does have moral and ethical implications. And no... You cannot do as you please. But Paul, you taught us about freedom and liberty in Christ. That we were equal. That we were free. And he's like, yes. But there are some boundaries. You're free to operate within these boundaries. You're not free to cross over the boundaries. Because love demands that we consider the others in our community. What you do affects your community. And love demands that you be considerate of the other people in your community. Church community and outside the church community. Here's Paul's last point. Verses 7 to 13 are about this. Love is more important than rights. See, we circle back to it again. Love is more important than rights. I'm going to read it. A comment. We're done. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not the worse off if we don't eat, neither are we better if we do eat. Verse 9, but be careful that this right, it's about rights and love, that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, primary at Aphrodite's, okay, and they see you there dining won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? And this is the key. Won't his conscience be encouraged to do what you're doing? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Twelve. Now when you sin like this, well, we just kind of got right down to it now, don't we? Is the food sin? No. Are you free? Yes. Is the idol anything? <clears throat> just a rock. 
But the problem is, when you put it in context in the community, everybody else thinks the idol is something. And there's demon powers behind the idol. And people know you claim to be a follower of Jesus. Now here, now we're getting to it. Put it all in context. And so if you, if you, Brother Deacon, go eat wings at the strip club, and we've got somebody in here who just got saved and has a real sexual addiction, and they know the best wings are down there too, but they see you exercising your liberty, what are they going to do? They're going to be encouraged to do the same thing. And now you're going to pull them into something they can't control and they're not strong enough to deal with and you've ruined them. You've destroyed their Christian walk. Now let me put it into context because we don't really have anything like that and that's not really a good example. And I'm sorry, Damon, for putting you in the strip club. But we don't, it's not really a good example at all. I'm sorry, I went that way. But it, we don't really have anything like this because what he's saying is, Chris, if you go eat at the idol temple, because we love the prime rib, it's the best in town, everybody knows it is. People come from all over the world to eat it. And that's all we're doing. We don't believe in Aphrodite. It's just a rock, just a statue, okay? But if other people see us do that, they get pulled back into idol worship. This is the issue. Not the meat, not the what you thought... The issue is you're encouraging people to go back into idolatry. Now, let me close this way. In our culture, we have nothing quite like this. This has been grossly misapplied. We have nothing like this. Their issue is not that they're offending someone in the church with their behavior. That is not the issue here. We've applied it that way. It's not the issue. You can stop that. The issue is that others might emulate their behavior and get pulled back into idolatry neither is this passage about people who feel offended all the time about everything this passage is not about people who are offended trying to force other believers to conform to their own idiosyncrasies of behavior now this is what i grew up with Whoever was offended in the church always had to force their behavior preferences on all the rest of us. That's not what this chapter is about at all. This issue is about something else. Paul's point is that we all have to live together in harmony with no group demanding we follow their behavior. Except those who are following Christ. That's the real crux of this. This little group and this little group and this little group have some different, we would say, convictions, force their convictions on the rest. That's not what's happening here, and that's actually what's being refuted. It's the actual opposite of what's happening here. Now, let me close it this way. If we are not exercising our rights in love, then we are abusing our freedom. Amen. That's Paul's real point, and that he calls sin against your brother, and ultimately in the chapter, sin against God. To exercise our rights in love, we have to consider how our behavior affects our brothers and our sisters because the very fruit of the gospel is to love your brothers and your sisters. Closing question. Do you love your brothers and your sisters? Do you love your brothers and sisters? Praise God for the transforming power of the gospel that causes us to love our brothers and sisters in a way that we consider them 
before we consider how we're going to use our own freedom and our own rights. I'm going to ask you to stand. Here's my homework for you. If you want to call it homework, let's stand together. A couple of things I want you to think about. Read chapters 9 and 10. It's going to open a discussion of Paul's authority and lead you into a little more food discussion Pastor David's going to build on next week. Read chapters 9 and 10. You'll be way ahead. If you have questions about 7 and 8 after you read them, and certainly I figure we're going to field some doozy questions this week on those chapters. They are loaded. Send them in. A podcast will be recorded in the early part of the week. B, I'd like for everybody this week to... Find an opportunity and a way to express love to one of your Christian brothers or sisters. Because that's really what Paul's driving at here. Do you love your brothers and sisters more than you love exercising your rights? And I think it's a good practice for us to at times stop and think about who God has put in our life as our brothers and sisters. You're stuck with us. We're family. And it's more than being stuck with us. It's learning to love each other and appreciate each other. Find a way this week to express some love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then this third one's a little more subtle than you might think. I want us to practice contentment in our present situation by rededicating our lives to Christ. Now, with that in mind, listen to what I'm about to say. Paul said, I prefer singleness to marriage because I can focus on the gospel and making disciples. Because I can dedicate my life purely to Christ in this way and not be distracted. Now that's not the context for most of us. Are you married? Stay in your context. Are you single and you want to stay? Then stay in your context. Are you engaged? Then go on through with it. It's fine. You feel better about that? Go ahead and marry her. It's going to be good. Wow. No, it's going to be good, seriously. It's going to be good. What I'm saying to you is this. I find myself in this context. I have a wife and two sons. God says, okay, look at your context, but in the context you live in, dedicate your life to me. I think if nothing else this morning... In this moment, right now, I think we could all practice this one thing. I know too many unhappy Christians who want to change their status. Stop it. This is the life God's given you. Embrace it. Dedicate your life to Christ. See where it goes. Good things are here. Father, we bow before you this afternoon. And Lord, in this moment of stillness, we just want to say that whatever our status is, I mean, God, it's a little silly, but here I am. I feel like Isaiah a little bit. You're you're crying out for people to go and make disciples, to share the gospel, to let their light shine, to be salt, to be light. God, here are hundreds of people this morning And Lord, we're going to answer back to you. Here am I. And Lord, here I am with a wife and two sons. And that's fine. I can figure this out. I don't need a status change. I need a heart change. 
I need a rededication. I need maybe some repentance over the sins that I have, just as gross and heinous maybe as the Corinthians, but nobody knows about them. God, in this moment, search our hearts. Extend some grace and mercy to us as we repent and rededicate our lives to you in this moment. We are yours. We are family. We love our brothers and sisters and we love you. God, as we mature, help us to consider that before we exercise our rights. Thank you for bringing us to this place and for this message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.